Okay, let's get started. Uh, homework's due today. It looks like most of you have turned it in. Uh, if you haven't, this is the time to turn it in. I don't accept late homework. Uh, that's because I will post the solutions um, immediately following class. So you'll have access to those. Um, there is not a new homework assignment for next week. Just because we're a little bit behind in lecture, which is fine. We've got time to make up for that. I have open days scheduled into the, the uh, course plan. But um, the content that I wanted the next homework to be over, we haven't covered yet. So I'm just going to wait, give you guys a week off or so. If you want to practice your math, you can go over some of the things we've been doing in class. I know it's been very mathematically intensive. And uh, we've had a few people drop out, perhaps because of that. I don't know. Um, that's not really the nature of this course. It's just a necessary, depending on how you look at it, a necessary pleasure or necessary evil of getting through the basics so that we can understand um, some of the, the literature. We do literature reviews, and we've got the foundation to, to explore some of the applications a little bit better. Neil? Why Because we're going to do some literature reviews. Oh, okay. So we're going to start our first one today. Oh, okay. I decided rather than plow ahead and do more quantum mechanics and go through uh, a bunch of math on the board, um, I decided at about 4 PM that it would be fun to put together a completely different lecture. I couldn't figure out what that would be until now. and. Uh, I was just searching around the web, looking for interesting things that were going on, and I happened to come across an article in Science that was by uh, a good friend of mine who was uh, a student with me at Stanford. And so I checked it out, and it has a lot to do with what we've just been talking about. So I decided, let's see how fast I can put together a lecture. And that's what I did. So um, lots of little things, because this is a fairly uh, rough rough and unpolished lecture. But um, I'll take a couple minutes to review what we did last time, sort of close, close the loop on that. Um, it was a lot of quantum mechanics. This class isn't, like I said, uh, something where I'm expecting you to do a lot of quantum mechanics calculations. Um, hopefully, the things I was doing at least looked uh, was something that you could watch me do and follow, if not uh, do it on your own. I don't know how long it's been since you've had quantum mechanics. It's been many, many years since I've had it. Um, but we'll, sort of our conclusion last time was that you could manipulate matter with light. That was the conclusion. So we're going to look at an application of that. This is an application we'll talk about more towards the end of the class when we can really understand all the different um, aspects of the application. But um, right now, I just wanted a break to do something a little lighter. So we'll talk about gravity measurements. And this is something that you can do uh, very precisely if you can sort of harness the quantum mechanics that we talked about last time. So those quantum mechanics, uh, this was sort of the slide that set up all the math that we did. So this is the only slide I'm going to show from last time. But we uh, considered a two-state atom. And real atoms have more than two energy levels, but um, many of them can be approximated by two energy levels if the atom is initially in the ground state, and you can find your poking and prodding of it to things that will only excite it into one particular state. We've got these two eigenstates of the atom. Uh, when we introduce a perturbation, they're no longer eigenstates, so their amplitude will change with time. And so I just wanted to go through and draw a few diagrams. Probably should have had these in the slides, but I didn't. So um, starting with an atom, we can treat the uh, potential of that atom as being some sort of potential well. And if we treat our, say, our electron as a classical electron oscillator, we were dealing with 
dealing with it like a, a mass on a spring that would oscillate back and forth. You can think of that as a potential well that's quadratic. And so the wave functions of that look like this. That's the spatial wave function of the lowest state. And then the higher states have more bumps. Right, so I'm not going to draw all the higher order states. We're considering a two-level atom, so I'll draw two levels. And those have energies that correspond to two different values on this energy as a function of some sort of displacement diagram. Okay, so that's the unperturbed atom. And when we did the classical electron oscillator, that's what we had. We had an unperturbed atom. And then we talked about an electric field driving it. And in quantum mechanics, we treated that as a perturbation to the Hamiltonian. And that perturbation was um, proportional to the dipole moment of the atom, which just means uh, the amplitude of this perturbation is a function of position. So it's a linear function of position. So we're going to add to this, yeah, call this. We're going to add to that a perturbation, which I'll call V. And it's just going to be a linear perturbation, something like that. So it's just going to tilt the whole thing. And essentially what that's doing, if you actually add that up, it's going to subtract some over here. It's going to add some over there. And it's going to have the effect of shifting this potential well over. So at the instant in time where a perturbation looks like this, essentially it's just going to sort of slosh all the wave function over to the left. But our perturbation isn't static. It's oscillating in time. So half a period later, this perturbation is going to be of the opposite sign. And as a result, it's going to shift the potential well to the right. So you can think of this as the wave function sloshing back and forth, or the eigenstate sloshing back and forth in time. Or if you like, you can expand it in terms of the original eigenstates. And you can say an atom that was initially in, well, OK, before I go there, if you have an atom in the ground state, and the electron cloud is described by this, um, this wave function, then it has a probability distribution that's basically Gaussian. Um, and as you perturb this Hamiltonian, you move that electron cloud back and forth. So we're shaking the electron cloud back and forth. We're shaking the uh, position of the eigenstate back and forth. But another way of thinking about that is in terms of the original eigenstates, the sum of these two functions, if I add them up, is going to be a wave function that's shifted over here to the left. Because on the left side here, and I'm trying to do this with as little mathematics as I can today. If you add up this and this, they're going to add up constructively on the left. And on the right, they're going to add up destructively. Right? So you get your electron cloud shifting to the left. So we can either describe it as the eigenstates moving to the left, or we can describe it as they're now being a, the atom which was initially in the ground state is now in a superposition of the state. And just as this uh, 
this potential well is being shaken back and forth at the optical frequency, um, these two wave functions cycle, cycle from positive to negative at two different frequencies. And the difference frequency between them was what we called the natural frequency of the atom. And that was the frequency I had to drive the atom at in order to excite this transition. So that was the optical frequency of, um, of this perturbation, which was shaking this back and forth. What that means is, at a later time, this second, this higher energy uh, wave function will have evolved relative to the lower wave function. And then they will add up to produce constructive interference on the right side and destructive on the left, okay, which is exactly what we have over here. We have the ground state wave function moving left and right. And here we have the atom that was in the ground state being coupled into a mix of the ground and higher order energy levels. And that coupling produces interference that moves the, the, the amplitude of the wave function back and forth from left to right. There's two different ways of looking at it. This is the one that we analyzed. And you can see what we've got is an electron going back and forth. It's a dipole antenna. Okay? So it can absorb radiation or it can emit radiation. In our case, it's being driven, so it's going to absorb radiation. And in order for it to be oscillating back and forth, it has to be in a superposition of these states. If it was in only one state, these are eigenstates. By definition, they're stationary, and the electron cloud wouldn't be moving back and forth. Yeah? I mean, it's in a superposition of the ground state and the excited state. If it's in a, like, let's say it's 50% ground state, 50% excited state, and that, those percentages aren't changing, then the interference of these two wave functions is going to oscillate between having a maximum on the left and having a maximum on the right. Yeah, in the process of doing that, there's two ways of thinking about it. You can think about it as shaking the electron back and forth, or you can think about it as exciting the electron partially into an upper state. And then that upper state and that lower state have different spatial wave functions that evolve at different rates. And so their interference pattern is dynamic. It looks like this. Um, but as it cycles through 2 pi of phase, it can oscillate between sort of this picture and that picture. Okay, so that's just that's some of the physics behind the mathematics. And I think, I think I left that out in last lecture. I just wanted to present that now. Hopefully that, at least in retrospect, makes the analysis a little more meaningful. What's that? Meaningful. Uh, <laughs>
OK, so I thought I would start with something fun today as we move on to new stuff. This is a map of uh, the, the uh, I guess this is the Yucatan Peninsula right here above this white line. And this is a uh, gravity, a, a contour plot of little g, acceleration due to the surface of the Earth, or due to the Earth, measured at the surface. Um, this plot was measured using basically a pendulum, or mass on a spring, just so simple harmonic oscillators. I guess pendulum, masses on springs don't have a dependence on g. Um, and little pendulum were driven around in trucks, and their periods were measured, their lengths were known, and little g was inferred. Uh, this is done routinely. There are people all over the world driving around in trucks with little pendulums doing this. And there's a lot of money being thrown out for people to develop more sensitive and more precise and more compact and more robust ways to measure little g. Anyone know why? Or who is funding this? Yes, the oil companies are doing this. Why? What, what do they have to gain? Exactly. Yeah. Right, so it's expensive to drill, so they need to have some reason for drilling. And they, you know, I mean, it's oil is less dense than granite or rock. And so by mapping out little g, where you see regions of low density, there's a reasonable chance that that's a pocket of oil. Um, this isn't what they would normally see and identify as uh, something to drill for. There's sort of a ring structure here. How many people have seen this plot, by the way? Okay. There's sort of a ring structure here. Um, and it turns out that ring structure is consistent with what you would get from um, the impact rings from a crater. Okay, so it looks like it was a big, very big crater. Um, I can't quite do the math in my head, but this is two degrees of of latitude. So that's big. What does that correspond to? Like five or six hundred miles? Is that right? Um, okay, so so core samples were drilled here. And there are some interesting things found in the core samples. You can um, look down as you go deeper and deeper and uh, basically trace back in time what was going on. And 65 million years down in the sample, there was a lot of uh, shocked quartz. So basically, sand is quartz, uh, silicon dioxide. When it's fused, it produces quartz, and violent events can fuse sand into, uh, into this shocked quartz. Um, so there's a lot of it at 65 million years. If you trace that back uh, in a biological time frame, that time was known as the KT boundary, Cretaceous Tertiary boundary between two, two call it biological periods. Was that bio, biological? Does anyone know the proper term for that uh, taxonomy? So what else happened 65 million years ago? Yes. Did you guys already watch the podcast? or no. You're like right on top of everything. Um, right, so 
65 million years ago is when the dinosaurs died out. It's also when like over 50% of the species on the Earth died out. It wasn't just the dinosaurs. So there is, there's growing theories that there is a massive um, sort of catastrophic event, catastrophic for the dinosaurs at least, event. And the meteorite you know, impacting and producing a nuclear winter was, was probably the leading candidate at this time. And now there's an impact site that has a crater. So this is now believed to be the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs. So anyhow, I thought I would start the lecture with oh, that's in the Gulf of Mexico, right? dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. Right. So this is in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. It's called the Chicxulub Crater. And if you're interested, you can Google any of these Chicxulub or the KT boundary, or you can probably just dinosaurs dying and probably get you there too. Um, so I don't get this. I just I don't get to show slides like this very often. Um, okay, so what does that have to do with quantum mechanics and superposition of wave states? Um, it was detected by measuring the local acceleration due to gravity, right? and you can do that. One way to do that is with swinging pendulum. It's actually a very accurate way to do it, but there's other ways. And some of the ways to do it are taking atoms and dropping them, and essentially measuring how fast they fall. One of the nice things about that is if you take an atom, you put it in a vacuum, and you know what atom you've got, it's a fairly reproducible experiment. There's not a lot of external influences that can affect how that atom is going to fall other than the gravitational field pulling on it. So um, we'll see how you can go about measuring acceleration due to gravity using atoms. And it turns out a key is the interference of the upper and lower energy wave states and properly preparing your atomic sample. There's other things that you might want to do using gravitational measurements, like this little map. Uh, anyone want to guess what might have been a very important, or maybe still is, but seven years ago, six years ago, uh, there were a lot of proposals put into DARPA, the Defense Agency Research group to measure little g more precisely than had ever been done before from a distance. Why might you want to do that in uh, close? <laughs> and not that precisely. Tunnels, underground bunkers. So this was after 2001 and terrorism. Everyone's worrying about, everyone's worrying about, yeah, Al-Qaeda. <laughs> <laughs> right, Iraq. We had to get, after 2001, everyone was thinking, we need to go to Iraq. We need to get Saddam Hussein. He's clearly the reason for this. But there was a lot of concern about dealing with an enemy that was in caves, in bunkers, and just being able to detect them, right? You can't, you know, the American military is so powerful, we can intercept cell phone conversations and all these electromagnetic signals. And then we find out that, you know, Al Qaeda is using carrier pigeons. Well, okay, that doesn't work. We're at a disadvantage. So if they're heavily fortified in underground bunkers, you'd like to be able to detect those bunkers. Um, one way to do it, again, is the same way you measure oil. You look for the gravitational signature. You can't mask that. You, know, you, can, you can turn off your cell phone. You can put a Faraday cage around your electronics, but you can't mask the absence of mass. Right? There's no... You know, mass shielding. If there was, we'd all be floating in our jetpacks right now. But uh, what I don't understand is the Earth is not alone. There were thousands of miles 
you need to be very precise. Well, I mean, you, you test your instruments. That's what you do. You calibrate them. And you figure out, I mean, to some extent, they are going to be affected by things like that. So you just have to figure out what the sensitivity level is, how big the cave needs to be before you can detect it with certainty. And it turns out that if you crunch the numbers and you do some pretty fancy physics, you can detect something that you could put in the Persian Gulf and detect a, uh, you know, a cave of sort of one or two football field size, since the media is always talking about everything measured in terms of football fields, regardless of dimension. I'll use that myself. But you know, large but not uh, unreasonable sized caves and structures, you, you can, in theory, have the sensitivity to detect using these atom interferometers. Um, now, there's a lot of issues. I was involved, actually, in one of these proposals back then. Um, it wasn't funded, and I I'm not surprised at all, but there's this thrill to get this money that you know entire 13, bill, 13 trillion dollar economy was now putting all of their money into ways to fight Al Qaeda. Why not do a little science with it? So um, the issue involved is that the the strength of the neutron source necessary for the atom interferometer that we were proposing required a nuclear reactor. Um, so it meant that it would need to be done on a nuclear submarine, and so we're basically asking the government to give us a nuclear submarine to tear apart and build into an atom interferometer. But it was worth a try. Um, okay, so if you can detect variations in little g, one of the things you can see is variations in the Earth's gravitational field. Okay, so this is from, the, uh, from a government webpage uh, describing some of the interesting science being done with government funding right now. And so one of these is the gravity gradiometer for subsurface mapping, so exactly this. So you can see some of the applications, subsurface mapping and dynamics, uh, ice sheet and ocean current variability monitoring, water table and storage observations, uh, comprehensive geodesy studies. It doesn't mention you know, looking for bad guys in caves, um, nor does it mention finding oil, because government is not putting money into that. There's plenty of private resources for that. And this thing up here is essentially what an atom interferometer would look like from the outside. This is just a vacuum chamber. And typical atom interferometers have vacuum chambers that are so big. And all these things going into it are essentially laser beams. So. These might represent uh, flanges and, and other vacuum chambers or tubes that just shield the beam from, from external influences. Maybe some uh, microwave or RF horns that go in to, uh, to manipulate the atoms. So here's the how it works. I know you can't read that from there, so let me just highlight of these things. Um, cesium atoms are first collected and cooled by lasers into a small cloud in a magneto-optical trap, a MOT. Um, and so these, there's six laser beams that hit it from every side, and that's the optical trap. Um, we'll learn how those work a little bit later in the semester, but essentially if, if you have some atoms 
that are properly prepared in the center of that, if they go towards any laser beam, the Doppler shift, the Doppler shifted laser frequency goes up right, when you're moving towards something. And if you tune the lasers just below an atomic resonance, then when they get Doppler shifted up, they become on resonance and the atom absorbs a photon. And in doing so, it gets kicked backwards. And so if it goes in any of the six directions, it gets kicked back. And so the thermal motion of the atom gets cooled. And that's what most of that apparatus is for. Um, Well, what is what makes what defines the temperature of an atom? It's 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 kinetic energy, right? So when you absorb a photon, you're absorbing energy. Um, you're also absorbing momentum, right? So if you have some kinetic energy, which would be temperature because it's moving, and then you absorb a photon. In a thermal equilibrium, that energy that the photon gives it would eventually, as the atom goes back into the ground state, give it some kick in an arbitrary direction. And if you take an atom that's moving and then you give it a kick in an arbitrary direction, on average, you increase its velocity. Okay? If you give it a kick in a specific direction opposite its motion, you actually decrease it. Okay? So. The energy isn't lost. What happens is the, uh, the incoming photon gets absorbed. That energy gets converted into the electronic energy of the excited energy state. The momentum slows down the, uh, the moving atom. It eventually radiates back into the lower state, giving off a photon. And now that goes in an arbitrary direction. That energy gets radiated away, so it doesn't result in heating. It will, yeah. But the key is it, maybe I tried to explain, I think I may have misstated this earlier. Um, it's always absorbing a momentum kick in the direction opposite its motion, and then it gets a momentum kick in a random direction. So on average, it's a net reduction in its motion. Now, not every, every interaction is going to result in that. It could. You know, absorb a photon this way and get a backwards kick, and then emit a photon in the same direction, in which case it would just continue on its original trajectory with its original velocity. But any other direction that it emits the photon, it's actually going to end up in a net reduction. Okay, so words, words, words. You need about 10 to the 9 atoms um, in one of these traps. They're laser cooled down to a few microkelvin. Okay, so that's on the order of centimeters per second uh, thermal velocity. Yeah, a few centimeters per second. Um, and the reason they need to be that cold is when they're that cold, then the wave nature becomes observable. You need a few things. You need the atoms not to be colliding with each other over the time frame of the, uh, the wave packet oscillation. Otherwise, you get dephasing. And you can't do anything coherent with the, with the quantum states. Um, and then it describes basically the way these gravity gradiometers work are essentially that top, so you've got these six beams coming in that are 
cooling and keeping the atoms in the center of that trap, if you essentially shut off the top beam, then it's going to have a net kick up. And so you give it a shot up, and you have a little atomic fountain, just like a water fountain. You're spraying them up, spray them up at about 10 centimeters a second. So they travel a little trajectory that literally goes like that. I mean, it's maybe less than a meter in height. And they do that, and you can interrogate them as they're moving and essentially measure their acceleration. It's, it's a free fall experiment, and you've got moving particles. Particles are just atoms. Neil? Are you going to talk about how you interrogate them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. that the quantum nature that we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do, we do uh, change the quantum nature. So here's a picture. This is six years old. This, this, is, a, uh, this is a picture from Steve Chu's lab at Stanford, and he's no longer at Stanford. But um, there's, there's a clock in the background. That's about the only thing for scale. But you know, this, is, this is probably three feet. Um, these are probably like eight inch flanges right there. So it's a scale of an experiment that you could put on an airplane or a truck. And that might look like it's a long way from actually being something that could be on an airplane or a truck. Um, I'm sure if there's an Ocean's 14 that required them to figure out where oil was, they could just come in here and you know, steal that one night and operate it the next day in the back of their truck. Um, it actually, this device now exists in a delivery truck that is parked in front of, um, were you ever up there, Adnan, at the end station at Stanford when the delivery truck was parked in the entryway? It's a relatively recent development, but uh, I have a lab and they decided to park the truck that that's in, in the entranceway to my lab. So it's kind of annoying, but kind of cool too. It's also kind of neat to see the grad students who work in that and uh, know that they probably don't have homes. They probably just drive around in the truck and sleep in the back. And well, um, we'll see that, yes, it does. Vibration affects the, the measurement. Um, there's a number of things to, that have been done to minimize the sensitivity to vibrations, but the equivalence principle says you can't tell the difference between gravity and an acceleration. Right? And essentially what that is is uh, you, know, you accelerate in your car and you feel yourself thrown, thrown back. You can't tell the difference between that and if your car just is going up a hill. So if you go to an amusement park and you ride one of these virtual roller coasters, that's the whole principle that these things are based on. They don't accelerate you, they just tilt you backwards and you feel like you're accelerating. So that is an issue, um, but there's some clever ways to sort of address that. So what I thought I would do is I looked through a bunch of literature to find a paper that was reasonably uh, important, but also tractable in the time frame that we have. And so I found a short paper that was in Nature last year. Um, so. Nature is a general publication. It's a very prestigious publication. I'm sorry, Net Nature, Science. Um, and it's written for a general audience. Okay, so I photocopied that. And what I'd like you to do is read this. It's three pages. And get together with, you know, get in small groups and discuss things that you things that you understand, you can share with each other, 
And hopefully, as a collective, we can sort through the whole thing. And I'll talk more about some of the uh, relevant concepts here once you've had a chance to read it. Thanks. Read it right now.
if you've gotten to the third column on page 76, you can stop. The rest of that is just description of errors that we won't deal with. Some questions to ponder as you finish up, if you want to go back and look. Uh, what's the meaning of diagram two? The two paragraphs above it give you some insight. You might also look at equation one and see if that looks familiar.
Where? Oh, I think it's a cat. Yeah, I don't I don't either. I guess it's the it's the ratio it's one axis is plotted the lower there's there's two different measurements being done simultaneously at two different elevations. And the difference in elevation is going to result in a phase shift between the uh between the phase and the atomic wave functions. And so as the signals oscillate, if you plot the lower versus the upper, you get that ellipse. But you don't need to spend time right now figuring that out. Does anybody know what the f equals 3 and f equals 4 states that they describe? What that notation means? It is. It's the total angular momentum. Is, well, it's, it's actually, uh, I had to look this up, but the f is the sum of the uh, nuclear momentum and the electronic momentum. So j is the angular momentum of the electron. And then F includes the nuclear contribution. So three or four h-bar of angular momentum. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, no, it doesn't. Or it's not currently doing that, but there's all sorts of interesting proposals that come out for people who want to use the LIGO data to do all sorts of things that it wasn't intended, you know, initially designed for. So um, I have seen a proposal. Someone wanted to measure the the Newtonian gravity falls off as 1 over r squared. And there's questions about how, r how close to 2 that exponent in the squared is, whether it's really 2. And you can experimentally try to limit that to uh, values of 2. And there's all sorts of experiments that have tried to do this at different length scales. And one of them was proposed using LIGO and was funded. The experiment hasn't been done. But it involves basically taking uh, a large barbell and spinning it meters away from one of the end mirrors in looking for the Newtonian gravitational pull on the end mirror in the LIGO data. It's funded. <laughs> yeah, it can, it can detect the barbell spinning. It can detect trucks driving by. Um, well, that sets a lower limit on the frequency. Uh, the, so higher frequencies tend, I mean, you don't tend to have large masses moving very rapidly and accelerating rapidly near the detector. So higher frequencies, it's not a problem. Well, yeah, it's a kilohertz to 10 hertz is, is the range. And uh, right now, the gravitational gradient would limit you at about 1 hertz. Uh, 10 hertz is limited by um, seismic isolation. So if that gets improved, then the gravitational gradient becomes an issue. So I asked the question, what is this figure 2 showing? What does that represent? That's sort of the heart of the, the experiment. So understanding that is really key to understanding what was done. So we'll talk about that. But let's give you a couple more minutes, two more minutes to discuss and come up with some ideas. Now, this is a, this solid line, well, actually not the solid line. Um, when the atoms are launched into the air, if you didn't do anything, this just would represent their trajectory. So time versus height. Um, so they're just shot straight up. Um, but if they had some horizontal component, this would just be a trajectory curve. And then the splitting is the interesting part. So the question is, what's causing that splitting? Why is it done? So let's look at that. First of all, um, can anyone explain what happens here at point A? It says an initial pi over 2 pulse. That's all it says. Neil? Yeah, so if you remember, the conclusion of last lecture was that um, 
we got equations for a squared and b squared, which is the probability of finding an atom in energy state A or energy state B, if it initially started entirely in energy state A. And in the limit where you drove it on resonance, um, that, let's see. Those expressions looked like this. If we're driving on resonance, this I could also write, that's the frequency at which it oscillates and would be equal to the Rabi frequency. So I could draw it, write it either way. So um, we said that a pi over 2 pulse is one where this argument omega times t is pi over 2. And if you're interested, I looked in, I don't know if it was in this paper, but I looked in some of the references. Um, turns out that's like a millisecond for the energy power levels you're using. So it's not that fast of a pulse. Um, so pi over 2 pulse um, makes this value 1 half and makes this value 1 half. So we have an equal superposition of states. Now, if you think about it in terms of the classical picture, um, you shine light onto an atom and it absorbs I say classical picture, and I'm talking about it absorbing a photon, but if it absorbs the light, what happens to the atom? What's that? It's more energetic, and what happens to its momentum? What happens to the momentum of the photon that got absorbed? It's transferred to the object, so it gives it a kick. And essentially, that's what's happening here. You've got a photon coming up, or a beam coming up, and you can think of it, if it transferred all of its momentum to uh, the matter, it would give that matter a kick and push it onto this dotted line trajectory. So if it is uh, controlled in such a way that it takes the population and puts it into a superposition of states, then you have the atoms traveling in a superposition of these two trajectories. So the two states are spatially separated. Okay, so that's not not a problem. I drew two um, spatial spatial uh, wave functions before that happen to be co-located, but there's no reason they couldn't be physically separated, and that's what this represents. Then. Well, if you measured whether atoms were here or here, yes, the wave functions would collapse, and you'd say this one took this trajectory, this one took that one. If you don't measure that, then you can only assume that they've taken a superposition of the two. So you mean like to take both Yeah. Okay, but if it's easier for you to, I mean, if you prefer to think it's really not going to affect our analysis, because this is, we're just going to do a classical analysis here, really. Uh, you can think of it as half the atoms get kicked onto this trajectory and half follow that one. Okay, at this point, there is a pi pulse applied. And that pi pulse is applied by a laser now that's directed down. It's too bad they didn't put some arrows in that diagram to show that. But we no longer have the same situation 
that drove this equation. This equation assumed that we started with all of the population in A and none of it in B. Now we're starting with an equal superposition. But we can still understand what's going on by thinking about what happens. When this argument goes to pi, then Yeah, you may be right. Um, yeah, you, yeah. So if a pi over two pulse transferred half the population into an excited state, a pi pulse would transfer all of it. Um, and if you start in state B instead of state A, it transfers all of it to state A. And in fact, what it does is just inverts the population. So if you start with a superposition of state A and B, it just whatever part of that superposition was in state A, it switches it to B and vice versa. So the dotted line, which represented the excited state, gets transitioned into what was the ground state. And the solid line, which was the ground state, the F equals 3, gets transferred into the excited state. Okay, so in doing that, these trajectories get a kick downwards and recombine. So we'll show later this is essentially an interferometer. We're going to measure the interference, or what's measured is the interference of the wave function of the particle that took this trajectory, or the part of the particle that took that trajectory, versus the part that took this trajectory. Measuring the, the wave interference of those two de Broglie waves, the two matter waves. Okay, so then this pulse is what split this single particle into two. And so in the analogy to an optical beam splitter, that, or an optical interferometer, that's a beam splitter. Okay, this pi pulse is what essentially um, caused this diagram to become symmetric. And this is analogous to a mirror. And then over here, if you don't have this pulse, these two trajectories just cross in space. But if you have the pulse, then they get recombined. They can be recombined, depending on the relative phase shifts, into a dotted line or into a solid line. They can be recombined so that all the atoms are then in the ground state or all the atoms are in the excited state. Okay. If there's no phase shift here, there's no net phase shift between the two states, then, the pi, then what you have is a pi over 2 pulse, a pi pulse, and a pi over 2 pulse. And if you add all those up, you get a 2 pi pulse, and you return to the original state that you had. Well, it comes from, let's see. I have to sort through my slides and see where I have it. Um, so there's a picture of what I was just describing. Maybe shows a little more clearly how that goes. And I've taken out the curvature of the paths due to the uh, acceleration. And this is the slide I wanted. Okay, so where does the phase shift come from? This is the the equation for the uh, 
the wave function of state B. There's some spatial wave function, and then there's some oscillation that depends on the energy level of state B. And then down here is the completely analogous equation for state A. Now, one thing that's different between them is the angular momentum. One was the f equals 3 state, one is the f equals 4, and I said that that number corresponds to how much angular momentum. So that's what physically separates um, state A from state B. But now, because they're also in different locations physically, and they're at different heights, h, there's an additional energy difference, and that's just mgh. So just physics 101, it's the mass of the cesium. That's why this looks a little confusing, mass of cesium. But that's just the mass of the atom times g times h. That's an additional energy that this upper atom has relative to the lower atom. Okay, now, of course, the height, it's not, it's not a uniform height the whole time. So you'd have to sort of integrate. Um, you'd have to write this excited energy as a function of the height and the height is a function of time as it goes through this trajectory. Um, but then you could integrate this expression or this argument here over the time of flight to get the overall accumulated phase for the upper state and do the same thing for the lower state. And what you'd find is there's going to be a phase shift due to this term. Right? And that depends on g, little g. Okay, so. Um, in this case, that little g is used. Actually, it's big G that they were testing, but you could equally as well fill that in. And so this picture sort of shows what's going on is that the, um, I don't know if that picture quite makes sense. The, yeah, so that's what I was thinking. But I, I pulled this right out of one of the papers, so I'm curious uh, why that is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to worry about it right now. I'm trying to figure out. The point is that um, there's a phase shift due to the gravitational field that comes from the fact that there are different heights. If you well, if you look carefully, yes and no. It will travel a longer trip if it's a greater distance, but they have to start at the same time and they have to end at the same time. And if that's the case, the one that travels the longer distance is going to be going faster. Uh, if it's going faster, it's got a different energy. If it's a different energy, it has a different wavelength. So um, those two effects will, will, uh, will balance each other. I don't know if they balance exactly or not. Okay, so here's, a, here's another picture that shows what's going on. Um, the paper talks about these Raman lasers. All that means is um, they're lasers that are tuned to what's called a Raman transition. 
between two states. The Raman transition, we'll learn later, is one where the uh, a particular photon is absorbed and then immediately there's another photon of a different energy that's given off. And the difference in the energies corresponds to the energy level change. And this energy level here that corresponds to the energy level that the ground state got excited to and then decayed into the final state doesn't have to actually exist. It can be a virtual energy level. Okay, so that type of transition is called the Raman transition. So the lasers that drove that were called the Raman lasers. And what this is showing here is um, that the laser has some momentum. So here is a beam coming in. The, beam is, the laser beam is pointing down and it just gives the, the atomic beam a kick. Um, likewise here, this gets a kick up from the beam. So let's look at some of the energy levels involved here. Um, this isn't from the same paper, but it's, it's a paper on the same experiment. This shows uh, the different energy levels of the cesium atom and the different uh, frequencies of light that are involved in the experiment. So cesium atom is chosen because the energy level between the F equals 3 and the F equals 4 state is well known. In fact, it's, uh, it's the transition that's used to define what a second is. So this energy difference or this frequency difference is a defined quantity. So you've got a very good calibration there. Um, and essentially, if you start with all of your atoms in the ground state, the way this is prepared is there's this, these Raman beams, which excite those ground state atoms to a virtual energy level, and then immediately they decay back um, to this excited level. And that's how the atoms get from the ground state into this F equals 4 state. Um, at that point, there's a couple interesting beams on here. There's this trapping beam. The length of this arrow represents the energy of, the fo of a photon in the trapping beam, or equivalently the frequency of the beam. And this vertical axis here is a plot of the energy. These lines represent the different energy eigenstates of the atom. So that trapping beam has enough energy to take an atom that's in the F equals 4 state and almost give it enough energy to reach the uh, F prime equals 5 state. Okay, so the 5 means the angular momentum is increased by 1. The F prime, as opposed to F, means there's been an electronic transition as well. Okay, so it's almost enough energy, but not quite. And that's um, what I was talking about with the Doppler shift. If an atom is moving towards that beam, it's going to see a Doppler shifted increase in the frequency. So this arrow is going to appear a little bit longer, and it's going to appear on resonance, and it can absorb then, and the atom can get shifted up into this F prime equals 5 state when it's moving towards a beam, and in the process it'll get a momentum kick backwards. And then it can, de can then decay um, back down here into the original state. You can see these, I'm not going to go through all the beams, but some of these are labeled repumping. Um, and essentially, 
to move atoms around. It's almost like a game of shoots and ladders. You need to follow these lines. So the manipulation of the atoms into a given state um, just requires having lasers that are tuned to all the different frequencies that you need to get to. And so this, this transition is important because it defines the, the uh, time standard. And then the excited state here is necessary for cooling. So there's a transition that's allowed, which allows the cooling to be done. And then the atoms are returned to the ground state for use. And at that point, they're cold. They're slow moving. And then these Raman beams right here are the ones that give the pi over 2 and the pi pulses. And the process shift it into some superposition of these two states. Neil? I don't know why cesium is the standard definition, but because it is the standard definition, it's a very useful one to use. Now, I suspect one, I mean, one reason it might be the standard definition is this particular transition corresponds to, what is that, uh, is that gigahertz? It's a, it's a transition that is easily coupled to by microwave resonators. So you have instruments that can excite that transition. So. Well, if the time at which the atom stays at that intermediate energy level is small, then the energy associated with the atom at that time can have a large spread. And that spread can be large enough to encompass several actual levels. It's one way of thinking about it. Um, or another way of saying it is um, if it essentially absorbs and emits a photon at the same time that have the right frequency differences, it only sees the net effect. And so it's no different than. Um, you know, doing a transaction where you give the cashier a hundred dollar bill and they give you back ninety bucks. The cashier never never really was in possession of an extra hundred bucks. They really only gained ten. Um, so I'll just I'll leave it at that for now. Neil? Okay. Yeah, we're we're winding up. Uh, just look see if there's anything else that uh, I wanted to point out. We'll, we'll describe the mathematics in a little more detail towards the end of the semester. There's a lot of things that are in this paper that are relevant that we're going to be talking about. The cooling, um, the fact that the frequency that was used, the, the time of measurement that was used um, was calibrated against a laser that was locked to a, an atomic transition. We're going to talk about how that's done. Um, if you want to learn more, I mean, there's, this is where all this material came from. And so um, I'll also post these notes in, on the web page.